we've called this series for the next few weeks, Scriptures and Sexuality. And one of the things that we as staff and as a leader and, and elders and staff have chosen to do is to, to say, in this world that is just filled with images and filled with messages of sexuality, it is important for us to, to say something about what God has to say about that and marriage and, and what that's to look like. And, and one of the great things about chapter 19, it, it goes back to Jesus says what God intended. And so we're kind of partnering with Peter and also with Becky Patton as they have been in some of the adult classes this fall. will be again in the spring. And then in January, on the 28th and 9th, uh, 27th, 28th, I'm going to add, you look for these cards. We're going to actually have what we call Holy Sexuality, just a weekend um, where we really want to bring as many people in our church and people that we might know to be a part of that. Do you want to tell us a little bit? I'll give you the mic so you can. Oh, you got one. You don't need this. Um, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I always do that and I blame them. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. So. Yeah, yeah, good job on the sound operator error here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, Becky and I have had a chance to do some conferences and workshops around the city over the last couple of years. And what we find is just the value of just actually cracking open the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are some topics that we don't often talk about in churches. And as we crack open the conversation, then it starts leading to deeper and further realities where we start finding the kinds of forgiveness and love that you've been describing the last few weeks. And yeah. so that piece is really exciting. So yeah. what we're, we're, our hope really is through this year, and it's not only just with adults, but all the way down to our student ministries and even with parents with kids, we really want to talk about the kind of language we can have as people in the world that we live in. So we're excited about doing it. Peter is one of our own, grew up in this church. Um, some of you may have known him when he was here, and he's changed. He's, he's better now. Um, <laughs> I was one of those that was coming to the communion table for yeah, the first yeah, time yeah. this morning. So, yeah. So, and I have to tell you, I really enjoyed getting to know both Peter and Becky and for just the opportunity to meet them. Peter, your wife is here. She probably yeah. doesn't like me to even say hi. Yeah. Hi, Hallie. And, uh, Great. We're just thrilled you're here. Um, I know you're going to take us kind of in a ride here on this first, what God intends in that sense in marriage. And, yeah. and Becky's going to share this next week a bit more, and then I'm going to try and clean up the mess you guys make. So. <laughs> Thanks. It is that. It is that. No, that, uh, thank you, Kevin. And, and um, I, th- I said at first service, and you and I didn't even plan any kind of Q&A prior to just a few minutes before the service, but it was on my heart even this morning just as uh, Becky and I have engaged with you and engaged with the staff and the elders here that uh, having had the opportunity and privilege even to walk alongside a number of churches the last few years, that one of the things I really appreciate about being here is the light in your eyes, in the light in the eyes of the staff and in the elders, that, that the life of God, and even what we're going to be talking about this morning, the Zoe of God, I don't know, it, it's not always the easiest to find, right, in our, in our lives today, and, and I see it in the lives of that. It just, it's, it's just a real privilege to be a part of what you're doing here, and Becky and I just feel really welcome and blessed to, to be a part of it. So uh, thank you for that. And you know we've been teaching for six weeks in the Navigators class already, and so thank you for picking up the pieces there. And I think, yeah, they're, they're still meeting today. I think they're sort of in counseling about what just happened. So one other thing, or two things by way of introduction, and then I'll read the text that we're into this morning. One is that I'm really aware when we crack crack open the text and we start talking about divorce here, that it opens up a lot. And even some of the other things I'm going to cover this morning opens up a lot. And it's too much to to cover on a Sunday morning. And so Becky and I even sort of just take the tact to say, hey, let's just, as I mentioned before, crack open the conversation and then have context along the way where we continue to delve in a little bit further and deeper into it. 
And, uh, and that's our hope, just as we partner together for that. So what I'm offering this morning is simply just a survey of some broad kinds of ideas, okay, and, and recognize there's other places that we'll dive in further. And the second thing, too, and I was very mindful of it after the first service, is that it's, it's not an easy word this morning. It's not an easy thing to talk about divorce and to talk about um, marriages in our context that we know are hurting and, and are fractured. And... As the song that just drives me to tears all the time, it is well with my soul. And the idea that the sin that was so part is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That I wouldn't stand up here this morning if I didn't believe that the full restoration of all things is possible. Okay, the blood covers all of it. And I may or may not restore a marriage. And I get all of that, that have, that have been fractured and stuff. But I know the person can be restored. I know that the life of God, of which I will try to speak and try to articulate the mystery of it for you this morning, that the life of God can come into all of those places. So in the midst of this being a difficult word on some levels this morning, I also want to say that beyond the difficulty of the word, the life of God reigns and it persists forever in his kingdom. So with that, let's just pray as we begin. Then I'll read the text and we'll start getting into it, okay? God, we, uh, we do just ask um, for your life to come now into the word in the way that it's been present um, through worship and through the communion table. That you continue to do your work among us in my heart as I speak, in the hearts of my family here, in the hearts of all of us as we try to get a picture of that which you've created and that which you've intended. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, well, if you have your Bibles this morning and want to open to Matthew 19, as Kevin has said, that's where we are in the text. <clears throat> and for you, I'm going to read the first eight verses. And then in the first section of what we'll do is I'll try to do my best whack at giving you a, an exegetical idea of what's happening in the text. So as you're opening with verse 1 here, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? Jesus replied, That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And Jesus said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one Flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, why then, did, that they asked, did Moses give a command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way in the beginning. Okay, so the key to understanding this passage on divorce really is to start with understanding why the Pharisees are asking the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And they're not coming asking the question for educational purposes, as if they want to gain some knowledge. They're not coming because they just have a personal interest necessarily in the subject. They're coming, and it's alluded to in the text, to test him. They're coming actually to trap Jesus with this question. And that trap is not uh, terribly obvious unless you dig into the historical context just a little bit more deeply and see what's at play. 
You see, when the Pharisees ask if it's lawful to divorce the wife for any and every reason, they are referring to a long-running dispute that they've been having among themselves about when it is okay to divorce your wife. And so I, I, I guess picture it this way, is that among the Pharisees, there are two schools of thought on this subject. And the schools of thought relate to a command that they refer to given in the law by Moses, and that was found in Deuteronomy 24. And in Deuteronomy 24 here, uh, and I'll read it for you, you don't have to turn to it, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends, it, sends her out of his house, then she will depart. So the dispute among the Pharisees at this point, as they're considering the nature of divorce, is uh, it revolves around this word indecency. What constitutes indecency on the part of the wife that would mean that it was therefore then lawful for a, a man to divorce her? And there is two schools of thought, two distinct categories, I guess two Jewish universities, as it were, okay? I mean, you just picture in your mind's eye two universities there where the Pharisees are, are growing up and getting schooled in uh, some of the ways of the law. And in one of the universities, it would have maybe been founded or established by this great rabbi, Hillel, was this guy's name, okay? And the other school was this rabbi, Shammai. And they had two very different forms of interpretation on the word indecency. Shammai, in particular, as he looked at the, the passage in Deuteronomy 24 and began to lay it out, had a very strict interpretation of that which constituted indecency. And for him, Shammai and his followers, all the way down to the Jewish people, indecency was um, reflected in a woman's sort of sexual indiscretion. That was the only way in which it would have been lawful then for a husband to divorce his wife is related to some sexual infidelity, something like that. OK, so that was one side of the argument. Now, on the other side, you had the University of Hillel. OK, and we noted in the first service, these aren't actual universities, right? I mean, they're just for the, for the point that if they were there, I'd hope they'd be a lot cheaper than Bethel. Right. Um, and that. But the University of Halal uh, and the people who followed this rabbi, um, they would have had a much more lenient interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. And it would have covered any number of grounds where it really was up to the man to determine that which was indecent in his wife. And if you read some of the interpretations of what Hillel and his followers would have said, is they would have been very comfortable with the idea that a man divorced his wife because the man found somebody walking along the street that was more beautiful in his eyes than his wife. And so, therefore, because he found this woman more beautiful, he could divorce his wife as now being indecent. She doesn't match up to this one, and he, they would go off and get divorced. It also was possible, you can read this in the old Jewish tradition as well, that if the woman spoiled the family meal, it was enough. In or, yeah, not, there's many of you worried about Thanksgiving coming up, right? Um, again, let me just be clear that the text is only um, describing scenarios. It's not prescribing what should happen, okay? So if the, if the family meal, you know, really breaks down over the holidays here, yeah, I think you, you get my point. What I'd recommend, actually, is you cook together and then you can just share the blame, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be the best? So they have this interpretation that was very lenient. And, and in that, as they come then to this trap with Jesus, they're really baiting him with this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And the bait is simply this, 
that they know that Jesus is going to have to answer one way or the other. And that's really the point, because what the Pharisees are concerned about is not necessarily how Jesus answers. What they're concerned about is that which we read in verse 2. Large crowds are following Jesus. And they don't like that. Because up until the time Jesus emerged on the scene as the new rabbi, the new teacher, the Pharisees had all the power. They were the ones that had the crowds following them. They were the ones who were able to control the people. And now they see Jesus with these crowds following him. And they're just, they may have been divided on this word indecency, but they were united in wanting to see Jesus and his power reduced. Okay? So they don't really care which way Jesus answers this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. They just want him to pick a side. Because then when he picks a side, what's going to happen, right? He's going to alienate the other side, and thus the people will be divided against Jesus, and, that, and he'll reduce, his power will be reduced. So that's the goal here. But Jesus is pretty smart, right? I, I once heard a quote from Dallas Willard, uh, who said that uh, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived, which I never really thought about that um, before, but I would tend to agree. And so when Jesus prepares his answer to them, Jesus decides to take neither side of that, and he focuses instead on how the Pharisees are actually asking the wrong question. And they're asking a question based on the wrong assumption. And the assumption that the Pharisees have is that, of course, it's okay to divorce. We just got to decide the circumstances in which it's fine and stuff. But, you know, divorces are right. We'll sort it out. Yeah, we can kind of pick and choose. It's only a question of when it's lawful. And so what Jesus does in his answer is he exposes the falsity of that line of thought. Okay? And he does so by taking them back to creation in the created design of marriage. And in doing so, and taking them back to the created design of marriage and this one flesh covenant that I'll speak about more in just a minute, what he's doing is he's actually doing something that was very common for rabbis to do in that day when they're in an argument. And what rabbis will do when they're trying to decide who's right in this is the one rabbi who can take his argument and bring it all the way back, the furthest in the Torah or the Old Testament, all the way back to creation, is going to win the argument. There, there was a, a concept or an idea among rabbis that, uh, that went something like this, the more original, the weightier. The more original... The weightier. And what that meant is that the more original or the further back you could go in the Old Testament as you supported your argument, then the weightier that argument became. And Jews would have believed that anything that was spoken at creation, everything that came since that time, need to be interpreted through the creation lens. And so in Jesus and taking him back to creation is playing the ultimate trump card here. Okay, this is the one. I mean, this is the ace of spades at this point. He's going back to creation, trumping every argument that has ever been given. And what does he say to them there? He goes back to the heart and says, you guys, you've got it all wrong. Don't you remember? Haven't you heard? Don't you remember the stories with which you've grown up? That the man and the woman are brought together in a one flesh covenant. And this covenant is brought together by God himself. And in this one flesh covenant, he ties them together. 
It's this holy and sacred act. And again, I'll say more about this in just a second. Where the, but the two people are tied together, interwoven together, two pieces uh, or two people with, with all the pieces of themselves being, being intermixed in this wonderful one flesh kind of covenant. And God winds it together. And so he says, yeah, don't, don't let any man try to tear that apart, what I've done. It's funny, I've done a number of weddings over the years, and, and maybe I'm a sentimental sap. <laughs> well, I am that. But, but besides that, um, there's always those moments during the wedding ceremony, up in front with the bride and the groom, and as they turn to one another, and they begin to say these powerful, lifelong vows of, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you start up front, at least for me, you can almost sort of feel God starting that process of the winding together of the two becoming one that will be consummated then in their sexual union as well, where God just brings these two people and just mixes them all up together with one another. It's a very powerful moment. And so what Jesus is saying is that, oh, Pharisees, the thing that you think is your entitlement this divorce it's against the design of how i did this shouldn't be torn apart because the pharisees and again in the mess that was that day in their legal entitlement it had gotten so bad and the reason for moses's decree in deuteronomy 24 was not to just you know say hey divorce is fine it was actually to protect the women in that day because the hearts of the men had become so hard and what they were doing is that they were putting their wives out on the street for whatever reason they saw fit, many of them. Okay? And then sometimes they'd say, well, maybe that wasn't the right decision, and then they'd pull them back, and then they'd put them out again, and then they'd pull them back, and even some of the men were trading their wives back and forth. And some of the, it, was, it was an awful situation. And the women had no legal rights in that society, so they were just sort of beholden to whatever the men were doing. So Moses, as this, as this concession to the hardness of heart, says, no, the women have to have a divorce certificate of some kind as legal proof that then if their husband decides that he wants them back, they can say no. Say, no, I have been um, divorced. I am set free out of this. He doesn't have a legal right or authority over me anymore. That's why that command was there. Not to say, hey, you know, if you kind of feel like it, it's, it's, you know, you're good to go. Um, it's because it was just there to protect women. And that's why we have that phrase that in Matthew 19, Jesus says, yeah, the only reason why this even ever came into play in the first place is because of the hardness of heart. But what you don't know you're messing with when you do this is you're messing with the one flesh union that I brought together. Because divorce literally, in, in the original text, means to rend from, to tear apart, to have two people who are wound together, torn apart. It becomes more evident when we understand even what this phrase one flesh means that's in the text. And it's a wonderfully, powerfully exciting phrase. But, but it's, it's powerful. I think the best thing that I read as I was doing some research on this particular text um, I think his name was Friedrich Bruner, was writing about this. And as he was describing the one flesh relationship, he said that the physical union of two people coming together, and again, you're not going to get this stuff in popular culture, right? This isn't what's on the magazine articles in our, in our grocery stores. The physical union of, of two people coming together results in something bigger. It results in something more magnificent, something grander. The word that he chose was it results in a metaphysical or beyond the physical communion of two people. So the physical union of coming together results in the metaphysical, something very mysterious happens, of a communion of souls of two people joined together in that. It's why Paul says when he refers to the one flesh relationship, 
this is a great mystery. I don't even get what goes on here. But I know when two people come together, there's a lot more at stake than just something physical happening here. Okay? God has wound that together. And Jesus points out that the Pharisees had lost sight of this. That they, they went into it sort of assuming that divorce was something that could be in play. And so in going back to the creation stories, he is basically trumping all the arguments, as I've said, and going back to that, dismantling the trap. And I love that piece. So that's the basic exegesis of the passage. You know, there's a lot more there, right? This is going to raise far more questions <laughs> along the lines of, so what happens if divorce has affected me or people close to me? And I, was, and I get that. And there's going, to be, there's going to be places where we can talk about that. Because again, what I'm about to talk about here in a few minutes with the Zoe life of God makes restoration of all things possible. But make no mistake, it's a hard word. When we understand what's at play with the one flesh covenant of the man and the woman, that there is a rending that is painful for those of you and those of us that have walked through relationships where we know people have been divorced or we ourselves have been divorced. We know what that rending feels like. We know we're messing with something bigger than ourselves and bigger than just something civil about who gets which property. There's something very deep and painful at play with that. And that's what Jesus is pointing out again. And what's interesting is Becky and I have done ministry together the last four years in this and going from church to church. And as, I, and as I've thought about sort of the, the mess that was that society back then, makes me wonder sometimes, even as I reflect on my own context and, and, and the churches in which I've been to, is it any more or any less of a mess today? I was reading some Barner research that Becky had pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago that had been done on the American church and the American society. By 2008, it says this. Among those Americans who have said their wedding vows, one out of three have been divorced at least once, and that's not a surprise, perhaps, but the surprising thing for me as I read on was that these divorce statistics are identical for born-again Christians as they are for non-born-again adults. So the statistics in the society, well, the church, we match, we mirror, we, we reflect exactly what's happening in society. And then he goes on to write, and this is something I'm seeing among my students at Bethel as well, that divorce is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage. Interviews with the young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but they're not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There's also evidence that many young people are moving towards embracing the idea of serial marriage. Think about that. We're rending and coming together and rending and coming together with other people. Serial marriage in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. I was talking to somebody between services here at church, and she said that her daughter, who's at a university, was taking a course on marriage, and there was a whole dimension of the course that was about separation and divorce, um, assuming that was just sort of part of the equation. So how do you deal with that dimension of it? Sort of interesting on that. And what was even crazier in the Barner research for me was that atheists... Ooh, see, I'm getting to a point where I'm going to get struck down, I think, in a minute, or we'll talk about gay marriage. I'm just going to say something about that, and now I'm a little nervous. Whew. Lights are going down, see? This is... Yep. This is that... <laughs> this is that fire and brimstone thing. Um, Becky, would you like to come up and take the second half of the sermon? If you could, you know, I'm, I'm open at this point. No, you're all right? Okay. 
yes. So, <laughs> um, I did see in the research that it was interesting that atheists, um, 21%, it's only 21% of atheists experiencing divorce, compared to 33% of those as believing born-again Christians. The, the, these stats were a little disturbing to me. As, as I said, I, that's what I see in conferences. What we see, Becky and me, as we scratch beneath the surface with people, as people are willing because they feel the freedom to, to reveal some of what's happening in their lives and scratch beneath, beneath the surface, that even those marriages in the Christian community that are staying together, they're hurting, often on some very profound levels. But you kind of stick it together, right? Sometimes we negotiate truces with one another. Lifelong truces is what we could call them, where we basically sort of the, the dreams of marriage have perhaps been shattered. But we need to stay together. We know that. It says it in the Bible, after all. So we sort of negotiated a truce with one another to sort of get what we can out of life and, and, and walk that out. I mean, Hallie and I have been married for 17 years, and we both can describe the, the wonder of the journey and the pain of the journey. The scratch beneath the surface. We tell our kids we've been through hell and back and hell and back and hell and back. Oh, and hell and back. Oh, and yeah, hell and back. Oh, and hell and back again. That's part of the deal. You know, as I think about that, and this is what I was about to say that was going to cause the fire and brimstone, and the thing was, is I was only just wondering about it. I would never say these things in public, right? I mean, this is not the kind of thing that you ever address in public. And, and, but, you know, as, as I was you know, reflecting, I would, again, never say these things out loud, but thinking about gay marriage, right? I was like, wow, what is he going to say? Well, you know, I, I get it. I, I, I get that gay marriage is, is this misaligned place. It's falling short of the mark. It's not the design that God has intended. Yeah, no, it's, it's not what we're called to. And I, and I even get the dimension of it where we feel sort of compelled to head down to the Capitol and maybe say some things about it or hold up some signs. I get that. I, I really do. I get that. But these, these are sort of the, the wonderings that I have. And if I was ever to say them publicly, I'd make sure I'd write them down because then as I said them, you know, I would just, you know, just write them down. So this is the kind of thing I would write down if I ever said anything publicly. <coughs> <laughs> maybe if we spent as much time worrying about the state of our own marriages as we do about preventing others, maybe we could perhaps present a picture to the world of the wonder and the holiness and the loveliness of the sacred God-designed one flesh union between a man and a woman that might just compel the world away from other versions because they would look at the Christian church and say, wow, look at that. That is what I want. See, I think somewhere deep inside of us, we, we recognize the truth. And when faced with the truth, and when faced with the wonder, that is something that God has designed and created, our hearts begin to long for that. But what I see among my students at Bethel, these 18, 19, and 20, and 21-year-olds, that are increasingly growing comfortable with the whole issue of gay marriage and saying, yeah, no, it's probably not something that we should do, but, I mean, who are we to say? <laughs> who are we to say anything about it? And so just kind of let him be. I wonder if we as a church could find a place somewhere in our marriages and in our life together as a body where we could grow in the wonder that is the one flesh covenant that God has designed and grow together the hard work. It's not a magic wand process, the hard work of doing that. So that when people say, whoa, I long for relational union. I long to be known like everybody longs to be known, right? 
And instead of trying to create different environments for me to be known and trying to create my own versions of sexuality, that, that that you are presenting to me, church, that is what I long for. That is what I'm designed for. And so I get it, all the other dimensions, but maybe if we did that, maybe there'd be a picture in play. But those are just the things that I wonder about I would never say publicly. <laughs> but that does take me into the last section of the text, and this is the part that, you know, again, as Kevin and I and Becky and elders and staff, and as we talked about things, this is where really wanted to get to this morning. And it relates to a question that I have, recognizing that marriages are hurting and marriages can be in trouble. And even people have experienced the pain of it. Is there any hope for, for restoration, for healing, recovery, that sort of thing. And I wondered about that this week, or even in past weeks as we talked about it, is that um, as we prepared for this, that the, the one place that I find hope is in the gospel itself. Out of all the different options out there, there is something about the gospel itself that provides hope. It's very, a very hard and core and design of what Jesus came to do. And I find it in the most famous of all verses, John 3.16, which I think most of you could probably recite if you needed to, right? It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, what's funny about this verse for me is that for many years of my life, uh, I realized that I misunderstood its meaning. Because what I understood about this verse was that it was a verse about how to get into heaven when we die, and how to avoid the judgment or the fires of hell. So this verse might be presented up front in a youth conference or, or in a setting just like this. And, and then we invite people to pray the sinner's prayer and they repent and they come forward. And, and then they receive some sort of stamp that gets them into heaven. Or maybe their, their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I've heard it said. And for me, I've uh, actually prayed that prayer, I think, going on 13 times now. Um, on this. So my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life at least 13 times. That way, Peter is not at all confused when I get there. He can page through any number of spots in the big Lamb's book and, and find me that was my understanding but upon closer examination it appears that in this verse something very different is at play as it turns out john is not speaking about how to get into heaven when we die and avoid judgment here he's calling believers into something very different and it's a new kind of life that we're able to live and even as i say that and begin the exegesis around that don't get me wrong heaven and hell and judgment is very much a part of the christian journey the journey of life and it's very much wound and found all throughout scripture but the problem is is that the, the, it's not found in this verse john three sixteen. that's not what he's getting at there's something very different in play and what he's getting at is revealed particularly in the last little part of that verse with the phrase everlasting life and in particular that word life right at the end okay and in that if john was wanting to describe something related to our existence as human beings something related to our sort of flesh and blood i'm alive when he used the word life there in that passage he would have used the greek word bios which, if that sounds familiar to you, it's the root for the word biology, which is the study of life. So if he was interested in talking about everlasting life as sort of being a synonym for heaven, you know, everlasting existence in heaven, that's how we understand that verse, he would have used the word um, bios, and then we could get to this idea that I will exist forever in heaven. But he didn't use that word in the Greek. 
to use something very different that is also translated into our English language as life as well. There's many different possibilities to translate from Greek to English. And when he did that, he used a word that has so much more packed into it. So many more dimensions of the gospel that he intended to convey. And that Greek word that he used there was zoe instead of bios. And zoe has a much fuller and more multidimensional meaning to it. And I'll be able to connect this to the journey of marriage and just even life and discipleship in general. But let me explain zoe here briefly. Roughly defined, zoe is the kind of life God himself enjoys. So for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. So whoever leans on him or counts on him will not perish, but begin to have the kind of life God himself enjoys. Strong's Concordance says it's the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, that belongs to God. It is imparted to believers who trust in him. The NIV Study Bible says it is an infinitely high quality of life. You can probably see it in your own notes if you have that version of the text. Vine's Dictionary says Zoe is life as God has it. It is the present and actual possession of the believer because of his relationship with Christ. One more, the translator's New Testament says, In the New Testament, eternal life is that kind of life which is given to all true believers in Christ. The word eternal draws attention to the quality of that life as being indestructible, not anything related to the the temporary nature of things or temporal sense. Thus, eternal life can be experienced by believers even while subject to the temporary conditions of earthly life. Translators should therefore be careful to avoid expressions which mean no more than some timeless continuation of life after death related to heaven. So everlasting life is this idea that God's care for humankind was so great. Lost in its sin, lost in the misery of it, that he sent his unique son among us. So whoever begins to count on Jesus, whoever begins to lean into him, to put their faith into them, will not lead a futile and failing existence. I'll say more about that in a second. But will begin to have the indestructible zoe of God himself. The very kind of life which God himself enjoys. Will it continue through eternity? Well, of course. But it's available now is what John is saying here. It's the great promise. It's what Paul is referring to in Romans 6.23. I'm sure some of you from your Awana days can quote that one, too, as part of the Romans road, right, where we start with Romans 3.23 and we take him down the road. I'm not sure where it leads. I can't remember where we finish with it. But, but I know Romans 6.23 is part of it. And it says that the wages of our sin is death. And death there in the Greek is simply thanatos, which means misery of the soul. doesn't mean hell. It means misery of the soul. So the wages or results of our sin is this misery of the soul. So I don't know about your life, but it certainly has characterized dimensions of my life in the past. Sort of locked in the power of sinful patterns and behaviors. I know what that thanatos feels like. I get it. And the results of our sin is thanatos. But the free gift of God available through Jesus Christ our Lord is what? Zoe. It's the life of God. So this then is the hope that I have for marriages. And also for those that have experienced the fracture of them, that their, that their hearts and minds can be restored completely. The hope I have is that God has broken the power of sin and he, presi- he provides the Zoe life for those who follow, for those who say, yeah, I want that. And Kevin, you said it beautifully at the end of last service where you said, you know, it's those people in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5.1, blessed are the broken, the poor in spirit, 
Blessed are those who have come to the end of their rope, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For they're the ones that begin to experience sort of the Zoe. And, you know, and Becky, too, even as we did a conference last weekend, and you described what you desired for your marriage, that you wanted to die a passionate lover of your husband. And as I sat there on the stool next to you, you know, forgetting that I had to teach for the moment, I was just like struck by that, by, by that, that phrasing that you use, a passionate lover. I, I want to die a passionate lover. Not that Hallie and I haven't negotiated some truce for the whole course of our life, but that we can walk up this journey and stand as wrinkled bags when we're 97 years old somewhere in the streets of Paris. Well, we'll be sitting because there's no way we could stand at that point. Um, but we'd be sitting somewhere in the streets of Paris, reflecting back in our life, and I still see the beauty and the wonder and the glory that is my wife. And we're nothing to look at, right? I mean, I've shrunk to four foot three at that point, and it's just... But that, I want to die passionately in love with my wife. I can't make that happen, but the Zoe can. Because what Jesus promises, for those who abide in him then, right, they begin to bear much fruit, and we see some of the fruit that is part of those who abide, the fruit of the Spirit, are things like what? Love. Real love. Not love through gritted teeth kinds of love, like you drive me wild as my spouse kind of love, but I'll love you anyway kind of. This is love. Enjoy and peace, to begin to taste such things in kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Boy, those would be some things that if a Christian marriage is defined by those things, and again, not through gritted teeth, but because the very zoe of God has so in, been injected into us that that which we reflect out are just these things, at least in part, I would think that somebody who is lost in the thanatos, lost in the misery of the soul, would say, whoa, whatever that is, that's what I want. That's the zoe life. I love what Richard Foster says about the discipleship journey, and I'll close with his thoughts and that of C.S. Lewis as well. Richard Foster writes that the goal of salvation is not to get us into heaven, but to get heaven into us. The daring goal, he writes, of the Christian life is an ever deeper reformation of our inner personality so that it reflects more and more of the glory and goodness of God. You see this life, this Zoe that comes from God and is the salvation that is in Jesus Christ is a character transforming life. It does not leave us where we are, but changes us as we progress from faith to faith, strength to strength, and glory to glory. I love it. It doesn't leave us where we are. And Becky and I get a lot. Oh, Peter, Becky, you know, as you teach, we just really want our children to hear that. And I, and I get that part of it. I want my children to hear this. But this is also for those of us that are 80 and 90. The Zoe life knows no age. It knows those hearts that want it. And it will come and it can transform really old patterns of behavior and bring the life of God into them. C.S. Lewis writes this, God is intent upon making each of us, I love this, into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror that reflects back to God perfectly Though, of course, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. And he goes on to write and know this, that as you do your journey, the real son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life, his thought, his zoe into you. 
beginning even to turn the tin soldier into a live man. It's a great hope that I share. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm sharing it's possible and it's available. And when Jesus, who is described by John, is the one who was with God and all things were made through him, and in him, says John in 1.3, in him was life. In him was Zoe. And that Zoe is the light of all humankind, and it is a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, says John. And so later on, as he's reflecting on Jesus, and he says in John 10.10, you know what? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Here's why I've come. That in the midst of feeling like all of your dreams are shattered and the misery of sin is prevalent upon you, here's why I've come. That you might have my Zoe and you would have it abundantly. So whatever you think about that abundant life passage, and I know in our culture we go to that prosperity gospel kind of thing where it's like, we deserve the abundant life, which is like a house and a job and two and a half kids and three cars and a cat and a dog and whatever else, right? And so we just put our quarter of faith in God's cosmic vending machine and press double A and we kind of get what we want, right? It's not at all what Jesus is saying on the abundant life. He's saying in the midst of life, fractured by sin, hurting and pain and turmoil, where maybe even some of the circumstances aren't going to change, in the midst of all of that, I promise you, you can have my Zoe. A love in the face of hate, to bless those who curse, to have joy in the midst of sorrow, real sorrow, but real joy. In the midst of all of that, my Zoe is possible. And to the extent that you are injected with that is the extent that you can point a picture of me to this world where people will say, lost in their Thanatos, they will say, ah, that's what I want. So my hope, even as we partner together, and we don't even know what it looks like, <laughs> I hate to say we're making it up as we go along, but, but there's, you know, there's, we'll, we'll see what God has in store. I'm glad to be on the journey in the year ahead with Kevin, with the staff and the church, and just wonder what God might begin to unfold in the Zoe that's possible among us here as people of faith where perhaps we become a community where we're marked by a passionate journey of love, at least in our marriages, so that our kids can grow up and say, ah, I don't know what the world is doing out there. I don't even understand half of that stuff. But what I know is that's what I want. That's what I'll point to. So that's my prayer for this place, for us, as we walk out with whatever this journey looks like in the future. Let me uh, pray as we close. I'll invite the worship team up and uh, sing our final song, and uh, we'll move on from there. God, I thank you for the journey that is life, for all of life is gift, the hard and the good. And I ask in the midst of what is undoubtedly turmoil and pain that exists among us, that may not go away just overnight. And that we don't even use you to try to make it all go away, but that we find you in it. And that your Zoe would come and transcendently transform us from tin soldiers to people pulsating with your life. And then together we can link hands and arms and turn and say to the world, Ah, oh, yeah, they'll know that we're Christians by our love. Fill us with your life, fill us with your kingdom. In your Son's name and by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.